bridging this gap and also coaching the startups and bringing them closer to the reality on the manufacturing side is definitely a thing. But it's also not always as easy and as sexy in fundraising, right? You are listening to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. The manufacturing sector is evolving and the work that happens on the front line is the key to driving future readiness. On each episode, we bring you conversations with global leaders and industrial companies. Our goal is to discuss trends, stories and people in digital manufacturing and offer the latest insight into solutions. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources at operationsone.com. I'm your podcast host, Benjamin Brockman. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information. Yeah, hello everybody to the Future Proof Operations podcast. Today we have a little bit different episode because I have two great guests on this episode. We want to speak about technology adoption in Europe or the openness to innovation. And I have on board Daniel and Markus. Markus is partner at a VC firm and Daniel is the CEO of a startup. And I'm very curious how the talk will go. Welcome, Markus. Welcome, Daniel. Yeah, thank you, Benjamin, for inviting us and glad to be here. Thanks, Benjamin, for having us. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it. Markus, we will start with you. Could you give us a small introduction of who you are and what you are doing at your venture capital firm? Yeah, sure. So my name is Markus, as you already mentioned. I'm one of two co-founders of Prequel Ventures. And Prequel Ventures is an emerging venture capital firm. So we are currently setting up our first institutional fund. And our focus is investing in B2B software startups in the realm of supply chain. And that for us includes everything from sourcing of materials until delivery to the end user. And of course, manufacturing is a big part of it as well. And this whole journey of investing in specifically supply chain startups started roughly three years ago with more like a research platform and database that my co-founder and I founded for this specific space that we called scm-startups.com. And from there, we developed the idea and did a first few angel investments. And one of them was iFlow as well. And are currently uh, raising the first fund. And uh, my personal background is I was on the investor side for my whole career in small cap private equity, venture capital. I had also a few stints on the startup side as well in operations, but that was not directly linked to manufacturing, unfortunately. Yeah, Marcus, thanks for that introduction. And I give the word directly to Daniel. Daniel, how about you? What do you do at your startup and how did you get there? Sure, yes. So the way I got to iFlow and the company and how we got founded is basically all started with studying mechanical engineering and business administration in Aachen. And there I already yeah, began to evolve the passion for IIoT, so Industrial Internet of Things, and how this will revolutionize the production world. And that was also one reason why I directly after my studies joined Bosch. And in total, I spent six years in different responsibilities within Bosch, but always in the area of Industrial Internet of Things. And I experienced a range from being in a corporate startup and prototyping real-time localization technologies for forklifts and to being responsible for IoT at a Bosch business unit. So the whole spectrum basically within Bosch. 
And that's also where my team and I back in the days felt the pain of how we can interconnect our hundreds of different factory assets in one factory, but also how can we interconnect all of our dozens of factories effectively and that without being dependent on service providers. And we checked the market for solutions, but could not find any that satisfied our needs. And so we said, let's solve the problem. And we had, and then we came together and uh, built the company called iFlow now. And yeah, it's now two, two years, a bit more than two years on the road. And we have now several customers around the world that use our data hub to interconnect their factory worlds. Daniel, was it a cultural shock for you to come from Bosch, a big enterprise, and then starting in, to a new journey in a small startup? Oh, yes. <laughs> so basically, it's which is very obvious, right? It's a very different experience. But actually, I still enjoy working in both worlds, right? So basically, I enjoyed working at Bosch. It's a 400,000 employees around the world. But now I'm also enjoying the startup world where we basically start with three founders. And both sides have their pros and cons. So we always called Bosch a big tanker ship. If you want to change one degrees in direction, you have to put in massive amounts of energy. And obviously that in a startup is just a blink of an eye. And trial and error is our DNA. And while making errors might not be an option for high series production for safety related products in automotive. But on the other side, right, also Bosch, like such a big company, has so many benefits. Like when you think of resources, like there are endless of resources in terms of capacity or budget, right? If you know the right people, you will always find a budget for the problem you want to solve. And that's obviously something that is very restricted in the startup. So mm -hmm. both worlds have pros and cons. And But what I really love about working um, in a startup is that everyone in a small team, when you grow a small team, right, everyone is passionate about the problem you solve, which is hard to achieve when you scale up to 400k employees. Yeah, curious to learn more about your startup today. This podcast is called Future Proof Operations Podcast, and I talk a lot about what does it need for companies to be future-proof. And I had already a lot of episodes where we talked about Europe as well. So what does it need for Europe to be future-proof? And what I oftentimes hear is that when we compare Europe with Asia, for example, China in particular, or with America, then it seems like we are lagging somehow behind. We are too slow. We are not open for innovation. We are too slow in adopting new technologies. And as I said at the beginning, today we would like to dive a little bit deeper into the macro level from a venture capital firm. What is the state currently of startups in Europe and what does it need that they can boost innovation here in Europe? And then on a smaller level, on the micro level, understand together with you, Daniel, how this is playing out on the level of a startup itself when you communicate, for example, with manufacturing companies and try to convince them to adopt new technology. And I would like to dive into that topic, taking a look on the macro level and understanding how the current state is. So Marcos, how would you assess the current state of Europe when it comes to adopting new technologies and convincing companies here in Europe to be open for innovation? How do you think about that? Yeah, the question is, is pretty broad, right? So I try to answer it in a structured way. So first of all, when, when we talk about manufacturing, of course, manufacturing itself is very technological, right? It would be foolish to deny that. So the processes used often incorporate like engineering knowledge and scientific knowledge and so on. So um, there's a lot of automation already going on and so on and so forth. So it's technological. But when we're talking about 
the adoption of new technologies and about innovation cycles and how easygoing European incumbents are with testing new technologies, with trying out new things and with being convinced that there's new interesting solutions out there. And then the story is a little bit different and there's a lot of room for improvements when it comes to innovation cycles, sales cycles and the general openness there. And the thing is, when you're talking about manufacturing, we're not only talking about the core process of physical production of goods, but we're talking about the companies, right? There's a lot around that as well. There's the orchestration of processes, of workflows, right? There's also other things left and right, like order management, supplier management, sourcing of materials and all these kind of things. And there we would say we see even more room for improvement, right? And often these processes aren't very technological, right? The physical manufacturing is maybe technological and there's still room for improvement, but these other processes are, aren't often very technological. So I would say say, I would generally agree with what you stated first, that there is a lot of skepticism around the competitiveness of Europe compared to the US and China. I think there is definitely room for improvement, but there's also great companies out there, great incumbents with lots of potential and of course, great startups that can help them solve that, right? And how do you think about the role of venture capital firms when it comes to boosting the whole ecosystem? Because you could argue that, for example, when you take a look on the specific numbers, how much money is being used or pushed into startups in the manufacturing field, then it's super, super obvious that there's much more money being used in America. Yeah. Is it just about money or how do you see the role of venture capital firms in general? Yeah, I think... The role of money is not to be underestimated, right? Like we obviously, when it comes to the adoption of new technologies at incumbents, at the users, at the customers for these startups, we cannot force anybody to try out new things. We as venture capitalists, right? Like we can also not rethink their operational setups. We're too much on the outside. But what we can do is we can fuel startups and new players in the market to do that. And we can provide them runway so enough time to bring their products to market to equip them to survive these long times and long sales cycles that are needed and enable them to build first without being dependent on revenue from day one right so that's one thing that we can obviously do and that's one thing that venture capital in general can do and for sure a disadvantage that europe in that case has compared to the us right if there's more venture capital in the ecosystem if there's more venture capital for manufacturing startups then obviously more startups can do this and can push this innovation process. At the same time, when we're talking about what we can do beyond that, then there's maybe a few other things. And I don't want to overestimate the role of VCs here. But what we try to do is we try on the other side to partner up with corporates that either invest on, in our fund or, or are associated with us in, in, in mm -hmm. a similar way. And we help them, on the other hand, to cooperate with startups, right? To find the new kids on the block, drive corporations, use them and work together with them, collaborate to solve existing challenges and show them just what's out there, right? Introduce them and also help them to adjust to working with startups because that's way different than what they usually do. And I would say the more focused a VC firm is, the more value it can also provide through its network. And that goes in both directions, right? For the startups, for the portfolio company it invests in, it can be like a layer of trust and introduce to exciting incumbents and solve a little bit that chicken egg problem that you sometimes have with trust and finding first customers. And on the other hand, it can obviously help interested incumbents to aggregate what's out there in the market and find new interesting solutions. So I think that can be definitely the role of venture capital. Yeah, and I find that point super 
interesting that you say there might be much more than just money, especially when you say you can collaborate with corporates, for example, and bring the whole startup landscape closer to the corporates. Because sometimes from my perspective, it feels like here and there, there is still not enough trust in startups. Yeah, And that this seems to be different in America, for example, where they say, okay, startup is just a part of our company landscape. And of course, you can collaborate with startups. And here you sometimes feel that you need to excuse that you are still a startup. Daniel, I would ask you in that regard, if you think about that from your startup perspective and probably from your Bosch previous perspective as well, I assume the startup landscape, you know, other startups in the manufacturing space. How do you see that? So how would you describe the current state of startups and openness for technology and innovation here in Europe? So when I'm zooming into the perspective back in the days when I was working at Bosch, so what we did was basically like screening the market for solutions, right? For example, we looked for analytics tools um, to address specific needs um, in terms of, for example, visualizing and analyzing our machine data. We didn't disclose startups from the beginning, so it was not like We didn't have a look on them, but obviously based on the processes and based on who was involved in the decision making, uh, manufacturing and traditional sectors like the manufacturing sector like to de-risk themselves, right? And obviously working with a startup is more a risk because how do you know that the technology still exists in a year from now? And so that was always in our heads when we evaluated different technologies back in the days at Bosch. And also that was still like at least my feeling that big companies like Bosch, they tend to work together with bigger and more mature companies. And that is actually also the same feeling that I have now as a startup, like changing the perspective, now selling a technology to big companies. And we got actually from a couple of OEMs already a no, just because we were a startup. Mm -hmm. So just because of that sole reason, there was no other reason. And they just said, hey, listen, we actually just work together with company as big as SAP. So that's no joke. That was said in that meeting. And so, sorry for you, you have a great technology and great solution, but we are not able to adapt that. And on the one hand side, this is understandable, right? When you look in the manufacturing industry and they have one major task and one major responsibilities that is keep the production lines running. But on the other hand, it's also hard for startups and hard for technology involvements yeah, to really get take off yeah, at the end. So it's still a mind shift needed as well it's not just about the money we need to have a mind shift change or a mindset change in europe as well marcus i would agree yes yeah i would also agree there it's sometimes easier said than done right the things daniel mentioned they are of course valid right like sometimes you just cannot afford trial and error processes because the errors are just so expensive right the point is totally valid but still sometimes i have the feeling and i think Daniel, and many startups out there can confirm that even in cases where trial and error is applicable, it's just not done. And people are just like too hesitant to test things. And then sometimes organizational setups are just not made for trying out new things. And I think you can do a lot there and you will not eliminate those long sales cycles in some cases, right? Sometimes it just takes time to build trust and to make things working. But I think you can probably eliminate a few factors in that equation. Markus, what role do politics or regulations play in that picture? Do you see some barriers 
which are hindering manufacturing companies to go with startups that could be solved on the regulation level where you could, for example, push as a venture capital cluster or ecosystem, the politics to make stuff simpler. Are there points which you have in mind? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure straight away if there are points to make it easier. But what we see, of course, is that sometimes regulation creates new markets, right? So think about CSRD, for example, or specific CO2 measurements for incumbents, or also like everything that comes with the Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, right? All these kind of cases, they rely on the availability of data, right? And making data available at scale is often a technological challenge, right? Technical and technological challenge. And therefore, things and legislations like that can help push incumbents to do something, right? To digitize their setups and work more with data. And that has, I would say, positive side effects. But on the other hand, of course, you cannot force by law incumbents to work more with startups, right? So regulation is truly or surely not the only answer, but it can be a factor for sure. So what is also interesting is when you look at VC money, right? So you can now think of how much VC money is spent in Europe, but you could also ask the question, how much VC money is invested from other foreign countries into Germany, for example. Mm -hmm. And when you raise that question, it also has regulation issues because we always, or like a lot of times we get the feedback that US VCs, for example, don't like to invest that much into German entities because just the way they are structured, regulated. And that might be also something where politics can help simplifying things, but not sure how you see that, Marcus. Yeah, I agree on that point. And also when we were talking about creating VC firms like and raising money for VC funds, I think we still see a gap in, in growth equity, for example, right, between the US and, and Europe. And there are some more valid reasons like maybe market sizes and seeing Europe um, as a more fragmented and fractured landscape. But at the same time, there is regulatory issues with who is able to and allowed to invest in venture capital firms when and so on. So I think there is a few things that could be eased that would have an indirect effect, right? Also, yeah, granting European startups more access to international money, all that would for sure, and I totally agree, there would have an indirect effect. That all caters to the thesis that if you have more money there, more runway, more firepower on the startup side, that you could then push the adoption of innovation as well. That's a thesis to be proven, but I think there's definitely something to it, right? Daniel, when we now go on your level, so on your startup level, you are the CEO of a startup which is working in the space of manufacturing and on a daily basis, you try to convince leads to buy your product. Have you been surprised coming from Bosch now into that startup world that a lot of companies are probably a little bit enterprisey and like Bosch and they are hesitant to go with startups or how would you describe your experience? Are we bolder than we thought or not? So basically, that's a tough question uh, to answer. <laughs> so in general, probably I would say like the manufacturing industry is very tough to tackle, like not only for startups, but for all kind of solution providers, just because it's traditional, it's um, slower than other industry sectors and so on and so forth. And so it's a hard question on that side. But maybe we can bring that down and specify it on the current level where the different companies are and then like how bold are they or how reluctant are they to different um, mm -hmm. technologies. 
So if you, for example, think of Industry 4.0, right, that was a big trend like 15 years ago. And now if you sort Industry 4.0 into the hype phases, it is probably in the trough of disillusionment currently. And so companies basically realize that it's not that simple to adopt new technologies like AI, for example, to factories, as it might have been in the IT world, for example, because of data availability, Marcus just mentioned. And so the question of how bold are we or how reluctant is the industry is probably also a question of how easy does a solution provider make it to the prospect to adopt the technology and how much support does it provide? At least that's something we experienced. And also what comes into play in that answer is, uh, or in that question is, how mature is the company you are addressing? So we see a lot of companies that are still in the beginning of digitalization and we still and we see also companies that are on the other end of the spectrum, which basically already are on the way to self-optimizing factories. So if they have already adopted a, couple, like a lot of technologies and are used to new technologies, have grown the organization that is required to maintain those technologies, and then they might be more bold than more reluctant, probably. Mm -hmm. So how about the basic argument of return on invest? You have your return on invest study and you say, hey, if you use my technology, my product, there is a ROI. Is it enough or do you think there is much more needed to convince the manufacturing companies to go with new technology? Yeah, so there is more. So obviously cost and return of invest, that's always important. And when you talk like to the one who has the budget, that has to be tackled. And all comes down if you have a positive impact on production costs and product quality or delivery performance, right? Or maybe also safety in factories. But there are more factors that play a role in the decision-making of adopting new technologies. We actually talked already about one, right? You already have references. Mm -hmm. Have you proven that your innovation works at another company, which then for me as a decision maker de-risks me and my company and before you have proven it somewhere else already? And so ref, having references is one important factor to have, which is at the end, again, a hand and egg problem. And also one factor might be, which also we tackled already, and how open and what's the mindset of the employees um, of the company you're just talking to. So we like talked already about European versus US. We also made already the experience that US might be a little bit more simpler because they are more used to the trial error uh, mechanisms than in Germany. So that also is an important factor, obviously, like who you target. And maybe one last example is what kind of innovation do you have? Is it currently trending? Is it pressuring? So, for example, compliance and regulations, environmental standards that are rising, right? Are you tackling an issue there or are you tackling a supply chain issue that came up in recent years? So also, have you trending um, topics within the hype phases that might facilitate your company or your, the decision at the end um, of the prospect you, you address? Mm -hmm. Daniel, at the beginning, you said that it should be easy to adopt that technology, to easy to understand the product, and then it would be probably easier and faster that the manufacturing companies adopt that technology. And I see it the same in my experience that, of course, there are two parts needed. So on the one hand side, you need the manufacturing company and they need to be open to go with innovation. But on the other hand side, there is the startup, for example, and the startup needs to be able to describe 
their product or its product in simple words and bring it closer to the world of a manufacturing company. And Daniel mentioned, for example, the industry 4.0 term, which is still a very big term. And sometimes I feel that even the industry 4.0 term is still very, very far away from some companies. But now we are already coming with new things like AI, HoloLens, and so on. So great other things. But for me, it seems like there might be a gap between technology and startups that are adopting the technology very fast and try to bring it to the manufacturing companies. And the manufacturing companies are still trying to get their paper out of the factories or trying to get the first steps into Industry 4.0. And my question is, your direction, Markus, do you see it the same that probably it needs coaching of the startups as well to come closer to the manufacturing companies, make it simpler, try to take them by the hand and not being in that techie world too much? Let's phrase it like that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because market timing is a big factor, right? So we saw that, for example, in manufacturing, we saw that with paper use and as a service models, for example, I think now there are a few bigger players adopting these kind of things, but there have been startups in the market trying this five, six, seven, eight years ago, and the market just was not ready. It was doable technologically, but it was just not a good fit for the reality at a manufacturing company. And one thing was mindset, maybe. Another thing was like that I think a lot of these founders sometimes came from outside the industry and tackled the problem from a very theoretical perspective. Whereas like Daniel mentioned, data availability and the problem data accessibility also is a problem, right? Like one thing is theoretically doable and, and technologically doable. And the other thing is doable in the reality of a producing company. So yeah, I would say definitely. On the other hand, we do see founders from the industry with a lot of industry experience at manufacturing companies, then founding their own companies. And I think they they do have an understanding of pain points there and they do have an understanding of what can theoretically work and what cannot or also practically work and what cannot. And you still encounter these challenges, right? You still encounter challenges of long sales cycles, lazy adoption rates and so on. So I think bridging this gap and also coaching the startups and bringing them closer to the reality on the manufacturing side is definitely a thing. But it's also not always as easy and as sexy in fundraising, right? Like it's just easier to pitch a fancy AI startup that can do whatever than, I don't know, something else. But at the same time, to scale AI and manufacturing across different factories, that's Daniel's topic, right? This is way more complex than it is in other industries and it takes more time and maybe it does not necessarily fit the hype cycle, right? Agree on that, Marcus. Guys, the time is flying. We are already at the closing part of the episode. Of course, we talked about things that, that are missing, where we can do better as startups, probably as venture capital firm or as Europe in general. At the end, I would like to have a look on the things which are already working out well. And I think this is a great segue to you, Daniel. I'm pretty sure you already have already some customers with your startup. Do you have one success story where you say, okay, here, it, it really worked out. I have been able to put my message into the place and the manufacturing company did understand what we are doing and then they adopted your innovative product. Uh, yes, we do have an example and actually somehow wraps up the episode because our first customer that I will talk about was not a European-based, it was a US-based automotive tier one supplier. Yeah. So that was the early, the first adopter of our technology. And uh, as Marcus already said, one big 
obstacle still in the manufacturing industry, why new technologies take so long to be adopted, is data availability and data accessibility. And there are basically two main challenges, which also were faced or have been faced by our customer in the U.S., The first was extreme asset heterogeneity, right? So OT and IT systems, so like machines, sensors you have, assets like in in your factories you have to manufacture your products, but also your IT systems like SAP, MES, or cloud systems, they're very diverse, very heterogeneous, all from different vendors, all provide different interfaces. And the second challenge is most of the time, if you're not that big as Bosch and have own resources, it's lack of knowledge. So the customer um, in that case also did not have the programming capacities nor the technical expertise to interconnect all the OT and IT systems to basically at the end automate data exchange, for example, for analytics. And that was exactly where we came into play because unlike calling a system integrator, the customer looked for a solution that empowers their existing team to interconnect the systems. So to be not independent on the system integrator or the service provider, but having a system, a data hub, for example, called iFlow in place that can be operated by own engineers. And after installing the data of iFlow, which provides a set of 200 connectors and to most common systems in the manufacturing industry, they could essentially make the connection between OT and IT systems as simple as working with Microsoft Excel at the end. And in just a few months, the customer has connected the 60 plus systems um, into analytics systems. And now based on that, they could like in the first year already reduce downtimes in their production, unplanned downtimes by 38% and dramatically increase the plant OE. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look into the next 10 years, what is your vision for your company? Yeah, so we see a current trend, which is basically self-service analytics, right? So manufacturing industries, they tend to use BI tools like Tableau, Power BI, but also configurable application platforms like OutSystems, Tulip, and to be able to empower their own teams to build analytics and applications. And we will enable that in the data world of manufacturing because iFlow um, is a data hub that makes it very simple um, for companies to access data from different and various systems, harmonize the data, so clean the data to effectively use it in analytics. So basically, we see ourselves as the enabler for emerging technologies, especially in the analytics tech stack and especially in companies that want to empower their own employees and become independent of like system providers like SAP, for example. Mm-hmm. And if we now go back on the macro level, Markus, if you take a look into the next 10 years and you paint a vision, how will Europe's startup landscape look like 10 years from now? Yeah, I might be a little bit biased here because on the one hand, I'm as a venture capitalist, I'm a professional optimist, right? And on the other hand, we're focused on supply chain tech, right? So obviously we have a little bit of a sector bias towards also manufacturing and other supply chain segments. But in general, I think that we will see new verticals rising and uh, you see like different hype cycles in, in the startup ecosystem as well, right? There is a few areas of the economy that have not seen substantial amounts of venture capital in the past, right? And that also have not seen substantial disruptions, 
right, at their core. And we surely think that manufacturing, but also the broader supply chain landscape is one part of that. So we think, and I think that there will be exciting new business models, exciting new companies, also big and scaling companies in that space. There's a few other spaces out there as well. I think there's an overall trend of reassuring and nearshoring and also sometimes sourcing closer to your home turf, right? So that might be also a good time for European solution providers, so for European startups in the end. So I would say in 10 years from now, maybe not all the challenges and all the problems we discussed are solved, but I think things will look way better than they do now. Great. This is an optimistic view as the closing part of our episode. Marcus, Daniel, it was fun. I learned a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, again, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Benjamin. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at operationsone.com. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information.